the euro dollar market. It means an offshore market that's off balance sheet and off the regulatory radar. But when did it go offshore? We're going to ask that question of Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, as part of our investigation of the latest Treasury International Capital Report, which is for the month of July, and what it may be telling us about the current state of the global monetary system. But first, we're going to go back in time, Jeff. How far back in time are we going? We're going to go all the way back to almost the first couple years that the Federal Reserve was in existence. We're going to go back to the teens, the 19 teens. Hmm. Oh, uh, okay, so 1914, I think the Federal Reserve came into existence, or 13? 13 was the law, 14 was the first operation, 15 is when everything got going. And then very quickly, somebody yeah. said, it's just human nature, it's human nature. You know, I mean, uh, we try to contain human nature, don't overdo it, don't be overly speculative, maybe we'll save these bubbles, we'll have a Federal Reserve to manage everything. And yet within a few years of this entity being created to try to uh, moderate the vicissitudes of the, you know, the private banking system, somebody in charge says, why don't we create a system that's sort of out of the way that can do things that are, we would otherwise not allow. Tell people what these EDGE Act corporations were. Well, first, before we get to the EDGE Act corporations, there were agreement corporations. And before we got to agreement corporations, there was the British mercantile system, which I don't talk about in the article we're, we're talking, we're, we're featuring here. But really, what the Federal, one of the Federal Reserve's earliest jobs, not the one that had to do with uh, currency elasticity, was to try to challenge British monetary supremacy. Because at that time, the United States was becoming the world's economic superpower. And it was widely believed that the US dollar should challenge the British pound in some way, shape, or form as the world's dominant currency. And it's kind of lost to history that some of the Federal Reserve's earliest tasks were to, for example, to create and nurture and maintain a banker's acceptance market, which is sort of an instrument of global finance, as well as, as what we're talking about here, a couple of years later, Congress got together and amended the Federal Reserve Act in, in 1916 and said, let's set up these agreement corporations. And what were agreement corporations? They were essentially private banks, really syndicated banks that would get together, raise a million dollars in capital, and then be largely free of regulation, domestic regulation, so long as they promised their customer base would be non-Americans. So you can set up a bank in the United States relatively free of regulation, pretty much do what you want so long as you don't do anything inside the US. And that was sort of the model or template that is familiar to anybody who understands the euro dollar system today. It wasn't something that a template didn't just start in the 1950s and 60s. It actually goes much, much deeper than back, deeper than that, back to the earliest days of the Federal Reserve in the United States, which were again, trying to mimic some of the late 19th century habits of the British mercantile system. So the euro dollar's roots go way, way, way back in time. It's just that they weren't really exploited until that particular moment in history. And these play, these Edge Act corporations, they existed literally outside the boundaries of the United States here in the Cayman Islands, maybe, maybe in Nassau in the Bahamas. I know right now there's a special exclusive economic zone in the Cayman Islands where you're allowed to do many more things as long as your customers aren't 
uh, residents of the Cayman Islands. And I'm thinking of the city of London in the 1950s. Same story, right, Jeff? You, we had all this financial repression in place after the Second World War to try to pay off all these debts. But it was said, all right, well, you guys can do all these extra things as long as you don't do it with any citizens of the, you know, of the British uh, Isles. But and where, the idea... Yeah. And the idea, Jeff, is that there's a Chinese wall, a Great Wall, a firewall, some sort of um, barrier between this money activity and the one that's onshore. But guess what? Like Jeff Goldblum said in Jurassic Park, life will find a way, water will find a way, and money will find a way through these cracks into the national system. Yeah, and I think that's really our point here, right, Emil? It's that this setup had 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 been put in place a long long time before and basically nobody took advantage of it because at that time you know in the 1920s and 30s especially the 30s and 40s you know offshore finance well, we're not we're not high on people's lists of places to go with their funds and their funding <laughs> but when you get to the post-war world in the 50s and 60s suddenly you have not just you know a rebuilding global economy you also have dollars floating around outside the United States. They have the guts of an international banking system really starting to put together. And then you have technological and communications evolutions and innovations that make it really easy to, to set up a brass plate shell in, the, in uh, the Bahamas or the Cayman Islands and communicate directly with that off, quote unquote offshore entity, even though the offshore entity that you've set up is nothing more than a name on a door. It's not actually a bank. It's just one of your employees who are lucky enough to be relocated to the Grand Cayman and uh, enjoy the sun and take take orders from the New York New York uh, parent, even though technically, as you as you just said, Emil, there's supposed to be separation between these offshore banks and their onshore parents. Really, it, this really is a shell game essentially that moving around, get, trying to get around regulations and, and to move money and monetary capacities into their most most efficient ways like you know like rain or wind during a hurricane will always find the weak point in your house that's really what we're talking about here money and finance will find the weak points in the system and they will always try to exploit it even if that weak point was set up you know 50 years beforehand there's always going to be the right combination of factors put together at specific periods in time that lead to you know, as, as the Jeff Goldblum character in Jurassic Park was alluding to, chaos theory, it will lead to unpredictable and unimaginable consequences at certain times. Chaos theory is one segment, component of a wider field of study called complex systems. And we're going to talk about the most recent activity in the nodes of this complex system, what's happening in the Caribbean and Japan. But before we do there, before we do, let's go back to the article, which I never introduced to the audience. By the way, it's called Dollar Warning Update from the Islands, which started it, posted on the 17th of September at Alhambra Partners. And Jeff, before you dive into what's happening right now, you continue by telling the story that this was happening in the background, but it was being studied, that there was good, honest scholarship being done. And I've got a quote here that I've got to read from Richard Debs. But before I do, people may be wondering, because I said there was scholarship being done. Something happened. You call it the Volcker myth, which ended this honest scholarship of this offshore, off the books, off the radar system. 
It's yeah, Emil. It's one thing we talk about constantly, really, when we go back in our, our historical, you know, examinations. The 1960s, in particular, were a you know, because the euro dollar system, this offshore monetary system, expanded so robustly and started to impact so many different parts of the global economy. Even policymakers who had had initially kind of turned their shoulder and turned a blind eye toward the euro dollar system were forced to start to reckon with it. And so when when they when these things started to happen in the 1960s that they could no longer ignore big things going on in the monetary world they did what they were supposed to do they started you know undertaking studies examinations talking to these bankers who were in the field and there was a wealth of scholarship on the euro dollar offshore money system especially late 60s throughout the maybe the middle to late 70s where these these central bankers took an honest look economists too academic economists took an honest look at what was actually going on in the monetary realm and saying Boy, there's a ton of innovation. There's a ton of, of you know, changes to the way money behaves and what money is. We ought to really stay on top of these things because, you know, maybe they could be quite important. Maybe even this has something to do with the fact that consumer prices seem to be completely out of control. And as everybody knows, even though at the time it was more controversial, but inflation, real inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Maybe we should connect these two things this gross monetary evolution, this proliferation of offshore monetary capacities with what's going on, not just in the U.S. economy, but also uh, throughout much of the rest of the world as well. The 1970s. I'm going to read a quote from the mid-1970s here by Richard Debs, and it reminds me of another piece from that exact same year, if I remember correctly, the case of the missing money. Maybe it was 1966, 76. Stephen Goldfeld or Goldfield? Goldfeld, yep, 76. Goldfeld. And you know what Goldfeld did and what Debs does here, it seems so much more scientific. They admit they don't know. You don't hear that very often in today's monetary scholarship. Everyone, that's, it, that's the Volcker myth, right? That's the idea that we don't need to question central bankers because they must know everything about money. Therefore, we'll just let them work out all of this stuff when in fact, as you as you the quote you're going to read you're going to find out that um that was never the case i love it because they say hey i looked into this and i don't know maybe yeah. we need more people looking into it you don't hear that these days okay here we go richard debs the federal reserve bank of new york's chief administrative officer at the time <clears throat> Finally, for the sake of logic, I should mention the legal framework of the euro-dollar market since I included the euro-dollar market in my working definition of international banking from the point of view of the United States. However, I'm afraid that I can't do much more than just mention it. The euro-dollar market itself is not easily definable, and its legal framework, if any, is even less so. The market grew rapidly without the assistance or burdens of an integrated or even coordinated set of laws. It is an international or multinational or transnational phenomenon, but it is regulated only to the extent that the euro-dollar activities of the institutions operating in that market, the euro banks, are subject to regulation and supervision by the national jurisdictions in which they operate. Complex system, networked, adaptive, self-organized. It makes me think of the Suffolk system too, how it's self-policing. Uh, your thoughts, Jeff? In theory, in theory, it's self-policing. And really, I mean, 
there's a couple things here. Number one, that quote was what, 45 years ago. Mm. So if it was un- understandable and unimaginably complex in 1976, you can only imagine what it looked like, or maybe you can't imagine, that's, that's really the problem. You can't imagine what it looked like 30 years later in say 2006 and what it might look like today. So that's really the challenge that we have before us. It's a challenge that because of the Volcker myth that uh, central bankers and economists have decided they don't want to take up, it's left for the rest of us to try to fill in these gaps because like it or not, this is the way the world actually works. And again, reiterate our point here that before the Volcker era, there was actually some legitimate and engaging scholarship about the euro dollar system that even today is quite useful in uh, us understanding what at least how it started and how it got going and how it got really sizable and big. And then we can sort of go back in our own, you know, through our own scholarship and fill in the gaps about what happened ever since 1976. And then, uh, you know, of course, the, the big one in 2007 that started to reveal all of those uh, fascinating and really uh, incredible developments over the decades in the middle where central bankers and where economics in general decided didn't care about any of these things. If one was to start doing monetary scholarship right now, if one was to attempt to define and identify and measure, map the creation and distribution of money, credit and collateral, one could do a lot worse than starting with the Treasury International Capital Report, which we go often, we go over often enough. It's uh, two months behind the times, so right now we're going to be looking at July's end, and we started talking about the Caribbean, and we're going to start with the July tick report with the Caribbean system. I'll pull up a graph. Yeah, what we've seen ever since last year, late last year, is that uh, banks banks i'm going to use my scare quotes here banks in the caribbean have said we don't want to do this dollar stuff anymore and they've been cutting back and what you're seeing here is the tick data captures cross-border relationships and transactions and balances and levels and flows and all sorts of other things and this is part of that where the tick data is saying banks that are located in the caribbean so these are offshore entities are doing fewer u.s dollar transactions with both uh, with U.S. banks, U.S. located banks, which includes foreign subsidiary or U.S. subsidiaries of foreign banks as well. So any U.S. bank is considered a U.S. bank, even if it's a foreign bank that happens to be located in the U.S. as a subsidiary of, a, of an overseas parent, which makes it even more complicated because usually some of this tick data captures transactions between that U.S. bank, which is a foreign subsidiary or U.S. subsidiary of a foreign bank, transferring money back to its parents overseas. So you have all sorts of complex, as you, as you pointed out, Emil, complex systems, whereas you know, the Caribbean, as we started out talking in, in this episode, the Caribbean has always been a very major node in that, that global monetary network. So when we see things happening with these Caribbean banks, Caribbean banks, it, means some, it can mean potentially something substantial. That was certainly the case in May 2011, where Caribbean banks had by and large sort of bypassed the 2008 crisis. At least there wasn't any drop off in activity even during the 2008 crisis. But in 2011, in that second euro dollar uh, crisis that, that erupted, suddenly the Caribbean banks were, were no longer, they're no longer expanding certainly, but which, which, which largely meant that the system itself was undertaking some form of radical transformation, which which became a deflationary monetary squeeze that didn't didn't really end 
And so right now we see the peak in March 2020, and then now you're drawing our attention with the red arrow to December 2020, and that it's only gone lower ever since. One of the things that I love about this data is that you can identify the nodes and then observe that they operate differently, that they had different perspectives. So we've had four euro dollar crises and these nodes turned themselves off or malfunctioned or stopped growing at different points. We, we've got the United States node, uh, the Caribbean, Europe and Japan. The Caribbean in May 2011, euro dollar number two, the European sovereign debt crisis. Now let's go to Japan, Tokyo, the leader of the Asian euro dollar. They blew right through 2008, right through 2011. The world was going to continue to be one of growth and expansion, especially because China was never going to stop growing and they were there to fund them until when? Until right around 2013, 2014. That, you know, we, the, uh, the fun with the Shanghai Chori solar, corporate default started to happen, all those other things. The Japanese were sort of sort of uh, understanding the situation as it was evolving in China and how the dollar or the euro dollar was finally catching up with the Chinese story and sort of got ahead of it. And so the Japanese, while they were still doing more dollar activities largely with China, borrowing and, and redistributing dollars through Tokyo, they were at least somewhat wary about this transition, this post-2011 transition and starting to think ahead. And of course, thinking ahead got them to 2017 when they said, especially after the 19th Party Congress, uh-oh, something's really different here. China is not the same China as it was before. And I, you know, we've, we've done this before. We've laid much of Euro, the early part of Euro dollar number four in 2018 at the doorstep of, of, of Tokyo banks. And the tick data sort of backs that up. And then so you fast forward to 2020, late 2020, early 2021, and suddenly you see the Japanese banks kind of doing the same thing as the Caribbean banks were doing during this year, which is supposed to be the most reflationary year maybe ever. And now you're showing a the combined total basically of claims on foreigners. Yeah, this is uh, the U.S. banks and what they've bought, what they've lent in U.S. dollar, various U.S. dollar instruments to the offshore world. So that's claims on foreigners. And you can see the peaks and valleys of of the euro dollar squeezes and the reflations. And now we zoom well, Emil, in. Isn't the, yes. the biggest part of that chart is like the U.S. dollar exchange value. Look at where it stops right at Bear Stearns in early of 2008. Yes, there's peaks and valleys since then, but. You know, it was on a parabolic trajectory mm. up until then, and then all of a sudden it stopped. You know, so everybody talks about, oh, the Fed's printing money and bank reserves, and it, it, there's been, you know, the, the post-crisis has been great for banks. Uh, the Fed's bailing out everybody and, and paying off Wall Street. Well, no. When you look at the actual monetary system, certainly the offshore monetary system and something like the tick data, and it's not just tick. We see this time and time again all over the place. It's really been that 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 pre-crisis story ended at Bear Stearns and ever since then you know even if the if the if some of the peaks are higher than the previous peaks it's still not the same as growth this is not monetary growth this is you know sideways is contraction even slightly growth is contraction we live in a non-linear world so the lack of growth at the same rate is the same thing as contraction and when you see lack of absolute growth that's a serious serious problem we zoom in on the next graph to 
the most recent two years, and we see that since April 2021, this graph, this we're on the downslope of this mountain slope here right now. So it's again, it's suggesting not reflation, not recovery, not acceleration, at least by this one measure. But, it's certainly not a flood of U.S. dollars, as Jay Powell said in 60 Minutes last year, right? And that's you know the the. The theme in the mainstream media, so far as that goes, is that there's too much money this year. You know, reverse repo, there's, you know, 1.3 trillion now at the reverse repo window. So obviously there's too much money and the world's biggest problem is an inflationary too much currency situation when, you know, that may be the case of bank reserves, but bank reserves are not functional money. And as we said at the outset here, this offshore stuff has been the basis of you know, really how things get done in the real economy, the real global economy internationally for more than a century. So for at least the last half century, this is the way it almost exclusively gets done. So this is the money that you need to look at. And it's not, you know, what we're showing you here, the tick data, it's by no means comprehensive either. It's, it's, a, it's a good slice of what goes on, but it's missing a whole bunch too, because, you know, the Treasury International Capital Report was never set up to tell us about the euro dollar system. It was really set up to kind of track some of these asset flows that go back and forth, sort of acknowledging in the late 70s that, yeah, there's stuff going on offshore. Maybe we want to keep track of some parts of it. And in a previous episode, we talked about the Asian financial crisis and how that was the first time this data set reflected a net selling of long-term domestic US dollar securities. And that it turned out over the following 20 some years that that was a warning, a symbol, a sign that something's wrong in the monetary system. Well, we talked about that because I believe in May, we registered a neg another negative, bad news. Jeff, for July, you're reporting we see yet another negative, extra bad news. Yes, yeah, so we have that. Yes, yeah, so we have that. Well, let's, let's, let's explain what we're talking about here. This is the... Uh... The, the net transactions, the foreigners who buy and sell U.S. dollar assets, as you just said. And so what we're saying here is that there's a direct and obvious correlation between monetary sufficiency and the ability of foreigners to buy U.S. dollar assets. As you know, the pre-crisis period, the world was flooded with euro dollar capacity, which meant foreigners had additional dollars in their hands that they repatriated back to the United States. And repatriate is the wrong word, that they used then to buy domestic U.S. dollar assets. So when you see the U.S. The euro dollar system is ex expanding, creating a sufficient amount of monetary capacity, the net that one of the symptoms or one of the consequences of of that uh, monetary capacity is that is that foreigners end up buying a lot of U.S. dollar assets that the Treasury International Capital Report can pick up on. Unusually, you know, if the U if the euro dollar system turns constrictive, there's not enough money. What that usually means is that foreigners buy fewer. U.S. dollar assets on net in any given month. And in more extreme situations, they're actually forced to sell on net U.S. dollar assets. So we're making a couple of assumptions here, which is that when foreigners have to sell U.S. dollar assets, that must mean something is not right. Something's very constrictive in the euro dollar system. There can't be enough money flowing outside the, the United States. Otherwise, foreigners would be buying U.S. dollar assets with these euro dollars they ended up holding. So if they're selling U.S. dollar assets, whether it's public or private entities, that's a warning sign. It's a consistent, reliable, historically established warning sign. As you mentioned, going back to the Asian financial crisis and even before, when the euro dollar system is creating dollars, foreigners buy U.S. dollar assets. When the euro dollar system is not creating dollars, 
foreigners sell U.S. dollar assets, which is what ha- what has happened in two out of the last three months in tick. So May and July. Which is troubling and concerning, at least something we need to keep our eye on. You raise three more items that we need to keep our eye on in a second article, a follow-up, which was also posted at Alhambra Investments on the 17th of September. The title of this one is Practical Remainders and Reminders. Rapid fire, Jeff. Let's go with number one. You observed something in China, treasury holdings in China and Belgium, and you compared it to the action of the CNY, the renminbi, the yuan, and you found what? There's usually a pretty good correlation there, too. And when dollars are not flowing into China, CNY tends to be weak, which is the rising, the other half of the rising dollar. And what we've seen ever since early part of this year, treasuries are disappearing from mainland China as well as Belgium as a proxy, a proxy for Chinese transactions in derivative markets with Euroclear. They've been dropping. Yet, ever since the end of June, CNY has been not perfectly, but very is traded in a very narrow sideways range, which contradiction sort of with what we're seeing in the tick data which kind of suggests some money business or monkey business going on in the money business uh stealth transactions pboc that kind of stuff so tick data says cny should probably be weaker than it is uh and it's not it's it's in fact almost going perfectly sideways point number two there's a blip on the radar screen this time coming from private net activity as reported about u.s dollar corporates so we see a negative for the first time since last December. Tick shows a sharp drop, meaning on net, more corporate securities were sold than bought. Yeah, and let's be, this is corporate bonds, not equities. So, but, you know, the, the corporate part of this, the euro dollar story was a big part of euro dollar number four for collateral reasons, junk bonds, all those kinds of, you know, euro bonds, things like that. So, you know, we knew that euro dollar number four was starting to get serious because of uh, and the collateral element to it that, you know, hurting people in the treasuries and, and cheap bills and stuff like that because of the foreign rejection of U.S. US dollar corporate assets during late 2018 and into 2019. Now, that turned positive last year where foreigners started to buy up a lot of U.S. corporate bonds again which is consistent with the idea, hey, the pandemic's behind us. There's a lot of growth potential if we believe in central bankers and economists. So let's buy U.S. corporate bonds again. And so that happened late last year into early this year, up until around you know uh, the middle part of the year where some of that buying appetite kind of fell off. And then for the month of July, we have now a negative for the first time since last year, which is you know not nothing, it's not potentially nothing huge, but it's one of those things you put in the back of your mind, put it on the back burner and say, we might want to have to revisit this down the road because potentially it could signal not just for collateral, but just for general purposes, that something is you know, some risk aversion has developed, some serious risk aversion has developed offshore. Our final blip on our monetary radar screen comes from the official sector, where if they're buying uh, long-term debt securities, that suggests the euro dollar system is growing. If they're selling, it could mean that they're trying to send a message to Uncle Sam to stop its profligate ways, or there's a currency Pearl Harbor in the making, or, or maybe they need to subsidize their local banking systems with the dollars they do have, and they're selling them on net, the treasury securities. So those are some of our possibilities. What did we see in July from the official sector? 
Yeah, they don't really sell because they hate Uncle Sam, do they? What? The, the U.S. The official sector tends to sell U.S. Treasury securities when they have no other option. It has nothing to do with Uncle Sam. It has everything to do with these offshore monetary conditions. And so especially going back to 2012 and really uh, euro dollar number three, 2014, the official sector, largely the Chinese, but not always the Chinese, they end up selling treasuries to try to fill in their euro dollar hole. So when we see the official sector sort of, you know, start to, to sell, especially U.S. Treasury assets, it's another signal that they're starting to get worried about because they're acting upon what they see as U.S. dollar inadequacies in their local jurisdictions. And what we've seen over the last couple months is that there was reflation in that 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 sort of trend. Um, U.S. Uh, foreign official sectors were buying U.S. treasuries on that earlier this year, which was sort of reflationary. You know, it's, it's backwards from the official story where they were supposed to they're supposed to be selling when they're buying and they buy when they sell and all that. Stuff. So they were buying by the official sector when bond, U.S. Treasury bonds were selling off in January and February because that meant both of those things actually meant reflationary conditions, more dollars, or at least less of a constrictive offshore environment. But ever since the middle of this year, consistent with pretty much everything we've been talking about, suddenly the, the official sector is starting to sell a little bit more than they're buying, than, which is indicative of you know, not, not, you know, not crisis-level trouble, but things moving in the wrong direction, the deflationary direction, the an indication that the euro dollar offshore system is experiencing a little bit, of, a little bit more trouble than not. In part two of this episode, we're going to talk about the biggest news in macro, not Evergrande, but that Fed's taper, which rhymes with paper. And we're going to look to a monetary measure, swaps, to see if what they thought of this. Swaps rhyme with flop. So that's the clue. Come right back. The swap flop. Is it the reaction of the market to the Fed paper taper? My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm not a poet. I wanted to be one, but I can't rhyme. As you can see, I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, a monetary poet who's going to rhyme couplets and sonnets for us. And he does daily at the Alhambra Investments blog. This particular blog post is called, Hey Jay, maybe check the swaps before committing to taper, September 22nd. Jeff, we're going to go back in time to September 2013, the last time uh, swaps turned positive. Shouldn't they always be positive? Tell us the story. That's really a, co a good question, isn't it? Because, uh, and, and you, maybe people don't know this, but before the 2008 crisis, it was widely believed that swap spreads could never be negative. And not, not that they shouldn't be negative, that they couldn't be negative. Now, there was an episode in the late 90s in Japan where swap spreads were negative over there. We won't get into that because, you know, it's sort of a far afield, although it, it's interesting enough, it goes along with what we're saying. But again, but before we got to the 2008 crisis, the 2008 crisis really broke a lot of assumptions and really changed a lot of how people think, even though maybe they don't know exactly what they should think about some of these things afterward. But at least it challenged a lot of longstanding perceptions, including in the swap market, which was that you could never have a negative swap spread. I remember at the time when this happened, 
there were rumors, I, you know, probably apocryphal stories about how traders couldn't even input a negative swap spread in their in their trading software because the computer program wouldn't accept a negative swap spread input. That's probably not true, but it goes to the you know it shows that the there's there was this persistent ID, ideology that a swap spread couldn't be negative. It reminds me a little bit of Y2K. The systems weren't built to turn to 2000. I don't even remember what it was all about, Jeff, but I do know that I think Y2K can still happen. All right, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's what two, the 2008 crisis was, is a delayed Y2K. There's too many zeros. <laughs> they didn't think you could have, what, it was like a two-digit was all they would allow for z uh, the year yeah, they, field and they, they didn't allow for four and if we went back to zero then we would go back to the stone age the computer would think what the simple computers right they had to save save memory for uh, so they only put two digits for a date instead or for a year instead of a uh, four digits what are what a different world right y2k keep an eye out for that still folks don't don't let your guard down jeff i did a bad job of even discussing what interest rate swaps are in the first place thankfully you rescue me by actually explaining it quote the swap spread itself is a very simple matter the raw difference between the quoted fixed leg of a vanilla interest rate swap and the same maturity of a nominal u.s treasury yield by all by all textbook accounts the former would never be less than the latter because if that ever happened this would seem to suggest that the market pricing for the U.S. government as riskier than the financial counterparty on the floating side of the swap. Oh, and then here's a very, I wrote funny, and I said I had to read this. For this mainstream approach, such financial products are always analyzed through this improper lens of generic credit risk. Throw that nonsense out the window. A negative swap spread isn't about credit risk, but liquidity and balance sheet capacity. Educate us. Yeah, there's a little bit to unpack there. And if, let's start with the fact that, you know, maybe most people are not familiar with interest rate swaps, or maybe they've heard about them in, you know, graduate school or something like that. But these are not, you know, some niche product that only a few people use. And it's, you know, the calculating the backroom in some backroom somewhere in the dark. There are literally hundreds of trillions of dollars in gross notional contracts, just interest rate swaps flowing throughout the world. So this is a major, 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 major big deal. This is a big marketplace and it tells us something specific and something substantial about that marketplace, which is deeply connected to pretty much every corner of the fixed income and monetary marketplace, which means it's pretty important for the global economy as a whole. And the second thing is, Interest rates. The reason we were saying that interest rate swap spreads—that that is the difference between the fixed rate, the, the quoted fixed rate of the swap, and the nominal U.S. Treasury, which is supposed to be the risk-free yield, right? So if, if the uh, if the swap the fixed leg of the of the swap spread is is yielding less than the same maturity U.S. Treasury, that's that's why we said that the market it was thought before the crisis. You could never have a negative swap spread because, as Alan Greenspan said many times in the middle 2000s, interest rates like that are not supposed to be independent. They're supposed to build up off of the risk-free rate, which is the U.S. Treasury rate. And so if the swap rate is less than the Treasury rate, what the hell are we even talking about? Does that mean that the swap market is saying the U.S. government is suddenly a larger credit risk than the financial institution on the other side of the swap? 
that's what it's if you look at it from the textbook approach that's kind of what it says and that's again that's why up until the it, it, this happened in october 2008 it was believed you would never see a negative swap spread at all because this upends pretty much everything you're taught in the economics textbook which is kind of helpful in a way that it actually happened Balance sheet capacity. Okay, so it's not what it is as explained to us in the textbook. What it is, the interest rate swap, is a tool, a method so as to construct your balance sheet so as to meet the regulatory requirements while expanding and managing risk and making money. And so tell us where to go from there. Once the balance sheet's stopped growing then this is when the when the negative started appearing in the interest rate swap spread yeah that's i mean look if, if we're looking at the united states government being price and look at this is october 2000 october november 2008 so this is the last thing you would expect during a really deep uh, financial crisis right that the market is saying hey these banks that are giving out all these swaps they're less risky than the u.s government so already you know you've got alarm bells ringing in your head that this is all upside down. This is all backwards. We've got this all wrong here. This cannot be about a risk-free rate. It can't be about credit risk of, of whatever. Or it can't be about credit risk of the U.S. government versus financial institutions because in October, November 2008, the one thing that was most questionable was the credit worthiness of financial institutions. So how can we have this negative swap spread? What does it really mean? So let's break it down into small e economic components, just simple supply and demand. And prices, right? Because if you know a yield is really the other side of a price, and so you have a financial instrument's price that is saying that this interest rate swap is more valuable than a U.S. Treasury. But why is that? And it's simply because you have to somebody out there in the financial system has to pay an, a, a, an extraordinary premium to get somebody to take the other side of the interest rate swap, and that premium is so large that they, they're willing to get to yield less than they could get on a U.S. government bond, which means that they're so desperate to do this, they're willing to essentially way, way, way overpay for what they're getting. So that's, that's an indication of if they're having to way overpay and pay this exorbitant premium to engage in a swap, number one, there's, there's got to be a reason for the demand for the swap. But on the other side of the, of the, of the coin, the other side of the swap, it also means that dealers the, the, the financial entities that are actually writing these contracts are, they increasingly need to be paid that exorbitant premium in order to engage in that derivative transaction. So it's an indication that dealers are risk averse or balance sheet capacity constrained, whatever the case may be, and both those things actually go together. That must be the reason why these, these swap spreads, or not the swaps, but the interest rate swap prices are so out of whack that it creates a negative swap spread and balance. Balance sheet capacity constraints, that's the key. And, and I don't think we go over, oh, I read your article where you talked about it in uh, last week's Real Clear Markets essay, uh, that balance sheet capacity is the modern money. That's what it is. And in part one of the show, we were talking about the exponential growth of US bank claims on foreigners exponential up until 2008. Same thing if you look at the BIS cross-border claims, exponential growth. Same thing if you look at individual banks and you look at their total asset size, exponential growth until 2008, meaning they had been conditioned for a generation or two or more that yes, 
these interest rate swaps are going to take up some capacity, some space on our precious balance sheet. But guess what? Our balance sheet isn't static. It's growing. Therefore, the cost will be managed over time. And the longer the swap, you know, the more space it needs to take up. But guess what? We know we're growing at an exponential pace. Therefore, we can manage to take on this risk. Then it's, comes it's funny, 2008. All of these things are consistently telling you the same thing, right? We have real world market prices, we have data, we have we have you know bank reports and everything else, and they all show the same thing, which is as you just described really well, you have exponential growth, but exponential money growth means balance sheet capacities are they're very fluid and flexible and efficient. Banks can do whatever they want, and then all of a sudden you have this you know this little crisis in two thousand eight. And suddenly you said you have all of these things going haywire, including a negative swap spread, which shows up, which suggests exactly that same thing, that balance sheet dynamics are no longer what they used to be. Now, the real issue here that we're reason we're still talking about this so many years later is that the swap spread, like like we just said in the previous episode about tick data, the swap spread never normalized. It never went back to the way it was. Oh, contraire, it, my friend. It did normalize. It didn't normalize. It went positive. But that's July, not normal. That was only the first step to normalization. Well, swap spreads on 30-year treasury swaps. Oh, my gosh. Spread on 30-year treasury swaps turned positive by Min Zhang, July 5th. 2013 for the first Wall Street Journal. For the first time in more than four years, a quirky gauge of investors' expectations for interest rates has changed course, the latest signal that the U.S. markets are normalizing after normalizing. the 2008 financial crisis. They never normalize. See, a, 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 real, a, a pre-crisis swap spread was something like, in the 30-year, was something like 50, 60 basis points. So the fact that they had been negative for year after year after year after the crisis was already, hey, like we said, the balance sheet capacity and market was paying premiums. But they only got to just slightly positive in the middle of the 2013, which if you extrapolated forward, as Ben Bernanke was doing in his taper, in his taper uh, drama, they were everybody expected that this would just normalize, that the swap spread would go back to where they were in the pre-crisis era because everything had, you know, four QEs had finally proved to be enough monetary accommodation to fix the problem. But along, along uh, you know, comes the rest of Eurodollar number three, or the beginning of Eurodollar number three, late in 2013, and we haven't really seen a positive 30-year swap spread since. So even even in the best part of the crisis, according to the swap market, which was, you know, that 2013 period, the immediate afterglow of QE3 and QE4, it never really normalized. The system seemed to be normalizing, which was consistent with any reflationary indications as well. But it never really got back to where it was going. It only ever stayed at the, in those best periods slightly negative, which again tells us that there's something wrong with balance sheet capacity. And what we see is that these ups and downs and compressing and decompressing swap spreads correlate very nicely and very neatly with all our other euro dollar indications that, that tell us about tightness or less tightness in money, whether it's reflation or not reflation. If there are any cartographers or geologists watching this show right now, they will recognize the topology of the graph that we're showing right now of swap spreads from 2007 through 2021, because it looks just like a completely unrelated graph, U.S. bank claims on foreigners. Incredible. You can see the euro dollar expansion and contraction over the last 14 years. We zoom in 
and we come to present day. Now we're looking at 2016 through 2021. We had that moment where it went through zero, positive, yay, in 2013. It's not on this graph. We're still negative, Jeff. But I guess if they've been sort of going up. Isn't that enough to announce a taper? You know, we're heading in the right direction. Well, we were heading in the right direction many, many months ago, right? I mean, so a, a decompressing, decompressing swap spread is a reflationary indication. It means that the, the exorbitant premium to get uh, dealers to engage in the swap is starting to decline a little bit. And that's, that's consistent with dealers becoming less risk averse and therefore slightly more money in the outside offshore euro dollar system, or at least less constriction across the euro dollar system. So they have this decompressing swap spread from last year on into this year, but only up until, hey, there's that date again, Emil, February 25th, 2021. It shows up here on the swap chart too. So ever since February 25th of 2021, we've had this no longer decompressing swaps in any of the maturities, which tells us that these spreads are at least in sort of a limbo. No longer clearly reflationary, but maybe not 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 necessarily getting worse. But very maybe you know it is getting worse because it's not the, the spreads are no longer decompressing in the same way they weren't in the middle of 2018, for example. So it's, it's the lack of decompression that draws our attention to the fact that maybe balance sheets aren't as good and as flyable and as as growing as we would we would expect them to be for continuous and continuer continuing uh reflation let alone something like actual inflation we went over this article at the request of a euro dollar university student patricia t who you can find on twitter at fj cruiser dxb she messaged me and she said hey would you go over this with Jeff, please? You can reach Jeff at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP on Twitter and me at Emil Kalinowski. Jeff, that's it for me on this episode. Are you ready to move on to part three? Or is there anything I forgot to mention about swap spreads? Well, let's just tie this back into taper then because Jay Powell is tapering QE. Not that it means anything to the monetary system of the real world. But he's doing it because he thinks the financial system is flooded with money and everything's great. The unemployment rate represents the real economy. And here we have a very reliable, consistent indication that at least says, hang on a second, Jay. Maybe not everything is what you think it is. Jeff Snyder may be a monetary poet, but he's also a small e economist. And that's what we're going to focus on in part three. We're going to look at the economy, the inventory cycle, the business cycle, the virtuous circle, and also the vicious circle. All right. All eyes on inventory. That's the title of a recent Jeff Snyder blog post at Alhambra Investments. Jeff Snyder is, of course, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. It was posted on the 23rd of September. We're going to be talking about little e economics, the business cycle, the inventory cycle, the virtuous circle, as well as the vicious circle. Jeff, what, do, what are those things? And then we'll dig in step by step. Well, the virtuous circle of economics, small e economics, is essentially the real good part, the recovery part of the business cycle, which is that, you know, look, there's some little bit more risk taking after you get past the worst part, which is the trough. People start taking a little bit more risk. Consumers start spending a little more. That leads to, um, you know, a little bit more spending activity, which leads to hiring activity, which leads to spending activity, which means that, you know, 
good things beget other good things and it just it continues in a virtuous circle so that the, eventually that recession that you just went through is suddenly you know nobody really remembers it after too long because it was just a temporary maybe sometimes painful but temporary decline in activity so the virtuous cycle of recovery is what we want to see and there's an inventory component to it or at least there used to be which is that firms during recession used to get depleted of their inventory levels and then they would start to build them back up they would restock on inventory and that would contribute to the risk taking the business activity the producing of goods more than what's actually being demanded at that particular time so restocking contributed positively to economic recovery periods that was part of, it was a big part of the virtuous circle and it would take place along the supply chain. It would start at the retailers, then move to the wholesalers, and then eventually the producers. And along the way, depending on the, the kind of cycle we were in, it could create a lot of good, good things, employment, investment, or unemployment and bankruptcy. So it was very important. You said- Yeah, that, that, right. That's the other side of the business cycle, right? Going into the recession and contraction. And that's the kind of the opposite. So, you know, retailers, wholesalers, even manufacturers, they all hold the various levels of inventory. And then retailers are obviously situated the closest to end user demand or economic demand and all that stuff. So if retailers start to see a sag in their sales, you know, They've got inventory coming in to try to meet a constant or consistent level of demand. And suddenly if demand goes soft, inventory starts to pile up on the retailers. Now retailers might look at that and say, well, this is just a little soft patch. We're not gonna worry too much about it. Or they might say, I don't have the internal cash flow. I don't, I'm not really all that optimistic. Therefore this, this, this uh, inventory accumulation in our back warehouses, it's getting to be a little bit too much. I'm gonna call up the wholesaler and say, hey, cut back on what you're sending me because I'm not selling it as fast as I used to. And the wholesaler might take the same approach and say, okay, this is just a soft patch. I'll keep, I'll keep doing everything I've been doing before. Or they might say, oh, this retailer is starting to say I don't want as much inventory. This other retailer is starting to tell me they don't want as much inventory. And this other one, same story. I got to call the producers and say, I don't need as much stuff from you. And the producers get that call, then they start to have to wonder, okay, now we have to adjust our production levels with what we're seeing in the inventory supply chain. And if the inventory throughout the supply chain is sort of backing up and stacking up and creating an order lag, then producers have to decide what they, you know, we have to cut back in production. And if it's a serious enough cut back in production, it kicks off the vicious cycle, which is where they say, well, orders are slowing down so much we might have to cut overtime for example or we might have to cut back on shifts and in the worst case scenario if inventory really accumulates and the orders really start to fall fall down we got to lay off workers and the reason that kicks off the vicious cycles because if they cut back on overtime and cut back on wages growth and things like that and then lay off workers that just means weaker consumption which goes back to the retailer and the retail all of a sudden sees their demand fall off even more and now there's more inventory and it leads to an inventory cycle where there's too much inventory leading to this vicious cycle of always cutting back on production therefore workers therefore consumption too much inventory cut back more and it just goes on and on and on until you get what we used to call recession you just sketched out the supply chain the inventory cycle from the perspective of demand, you know, we're thinking about the demand pool and its effect on the supply chain because 
really, we've gotten used to that being the only factor affecting the inventory cycle because we've been living in an era of globalization, just-in-time inventory, and everything works like clockwork, and it's always going to be that way, and we don't have to worry about the other side. What happens if there's a supply disruption, which is what we've been living through the last couple of years, 18 months or so, deglobalization, supply shocks, container shortages, port shutdowns, what happens from the supply perspective to the supply chain if retailers, producers, wholesalers are worried about even getting the necessary supplies to create the products? Well, there's two things that can happen. I think people have been, the public by and large has been, their perception has been colored by the one, which is the automobile sector. In automobile sectors, you look at dealer inventories, there's there's low as has ever been, simply because dealers can't get enough cars on their lot and demand has been artificially uh, boosted in any way. That's only part of what's going on in the inventory cycle. On the other side, which is basically the vast majority of everybody else, it's a little bit different story. As we've heard from companies like Walmart and Costco and others, what they've decided to do is just go crazy ordering stuff just to see if anything can make it through the supply bottlenecks just to maintain some level of, of product on their shelves. So they've been, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating here. They've been double and triple, order, triple ordering things just so that something can break, make its way through. And, and what that does is it kicks off another di a different kind of inventory cycle where the more they order to try to get stuff through, squeeze it through the supply chain that's all clogged up, the more that contributes to clogging the supply chain, which means then they have to order more to try to get stuff to, to arrive through that, that, that ridiculous mess, which just means that it just gets worse and worse and worse. So the worse the supply chain logistics become, the more that retailers tend to order to get stuff through, then the, more, the worse the supply chain stuff gets, the more they order and back and forth until we have absolutely no idea how much inventory is actually stuck at ports, on railroads in the United States, waiting to, be on, on, uh, waiting to be loaded on a ship in China, for example. There is inventory all over the place, and I don't really believe that anybody has any good idea how much is out there because dealers have just said, screw just in time. We're just going to deal with inventory. We're just going to get us whatever we can get our hands on today, and we'll worry about any excesses uh, down the road. Now we're going to talk about supply and demand from the perspective of this question that you ask. What happens when the logistics get more sorted out and then deliveries, rather than trickle through, come pouring out? This is the cyclical question for early 2022. Jeff, on a supply side, what will happen if it starts pouring through? Well, I mean, right. I mean, that's where we start, right? Eventually, some of these bottlenecks will get worked out and they'll get worked out sufficiently that goods start to flow more regularly. And that means or potentially could mean that, you know, you're just you're just throwing orders. And you're just ordering inventory, hoping that some of it arrives. Well, what happens when it starts to arrive? And what happens when a lot of that stuff is flooded? Yeah, no um, more orders. Some of the big companies have said they're prepared. We've we've rented additional warehouses. We've built up our own capacities. We're prepared for that flood of inventory. And I think they, maybe that's true given the one caveat, which we haven't talked about through all this weird inventory cycle, which is so long as demand maintains itself. So what they're saying is 
yes, we've ordered all this inventory. We know at some point it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna arrive. We're gonna we're gonna we're uh, we're gonna have to rent additional warehouses and space to store it all. But we don't expect to store it all that for the, all that long because haven't you seen the economy's great? Everything's awesome in the United States. Retail sales are high. The goods economy is really doing very well, and we expect that to continue as. Hey, Jay Powell's going to taper his QE, so obviously he believes things are moving in the right direction too. But what if it's not the case? What if demand is a touch softer or worse heading into 2022? And now retailers who thought they were prepared for this flood of inventory now sees that demand is quite a bit less or maybe worse than they thought it was when they started to build up this inventory through the supply chain. That's right. That's the contention of this show since 2020 is that you just can't turn an economy on and off and hope that there isn't some sort of damage that takes especially in the context of the last 14 years so v-shaped recovery i guess that's what they're counting on right now this supply chain over ordering but we're a little hesitant to believe that's going to happen and we can turn to some data pmi data manufacturing services and composite data for the ism and uh, from market in the united states i'll pull up a couple of graphs jeff you turn to them to kind of gauge where we may be in 2022 well as expected during the early part of the year these pmis went through the roof which is what you would which which is what 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 was supposed to have happened last year and it finally happened this year and the question is, why did it happen this year? On the manufacturing side, you can say, well, yeah, that's the goods economy recovering. And maybe that's just, you know, the finally the U.S. economy getting out and throwing off of its its COVID shackles and starting to behave normally again. But it may also be because simple, you know, uh, simple recovery boosted by you know, sort of the artificiality of Uncle Sam's depositing checks in uh, Americans accounts. And what are the actual impacts of that over time? In addition to all of that is this inventory, artificial inventory cycle where maybe manufacturing has maintained itself over the last, over this year because of this over-ordering and persistent ordering that uh, that retailers and wholesalers are doing just to try to make up, to try to get any kind of delivery despite the supply bottlenecks. So manufacturing might be doing well for, for a number of reasons. It's not, it's not specifically, you know, we can't specifically say what's the reason why manufacturing PMIs, for example, remain as elevated as they are, especially when you consider that um, some other parts of the industrial economy, as we see in industrial production numbers, are doing anywhere close to that well. The services sector not doing so well. Uh, perhaps it's because the economy itself, the underlying economy is not healthy, or perhaps because of the Delta restrictions, Delta variant restrictions. And so the net effect is this composite index, which weighs together the manufacturing and the services, doesn't look as healthy. Is there anything that we should take away from this graph that you haven't already stated on the manufacturing side? I think that, you know, there's a couple things here. If the, if you take the PMIs literally, and you can see there's a very good correlation with quarterly GDP growth. And so that says the, the recent PMI number, which was 54 and a half for the month of September, the flash estimate for September, which suggests somewhere around two or 3% in, in GDP growth, which is a huge disappointment from, where, from what we really need. And that really raises questions about what's going on here. Obviously we've hit a soft spot. So the recovery this year was supposed to be pretty much consistent throughout the year, except now we're seeing 
uniform indications that the third quarter, somewhat the second quarter, but really the third quarter of this year has hit a rough patch. Now, the reason, the, the, the question is why? What is the soft patch? What is it, what is it really about? You know, you raised the one possibility is that's nothing more than, you know, overreaction to the Delta variant and some some reimposition of, of pandemic fighting measures across various parts of the U.S. as well as around the rest of the world. And maybe that accounts for why manufacturing PMIs remain high, but services PMIs have fallen more because service sector is impacted more by pandemic level restriction. But it also may be that something more fundamental. Again, the manufacturing PMIs might be high because of this overordering in the supply chain that continues as supply bottlenecks continue to be a severe problem throughout the throughout that supply chain. But at the same time, it may be more fundamental problems in demand because maybe all of that government's, uh, government helicopter money earlier this year doesn't actually create much more than that short run impact, a short run, uh, short run level of artificiality that eventually wears off. So maybe it's Delta variant in the third quarter, but maybe it's just the other side of Uncle Sam's nickels. And we're starting to see less and less impact of that. And it makes sense that what happened in the service sector versus the manufacturing sector, because manufacturing is robust for other reasons other than demand and user demand anyway, and that the services are being impacted because the economy post helicopter maybe doesn't look as all that awesome and robust as it was supposed to. Because remember, economic theory, capitally economic theory says government spending and government activities is stimulus, which means it has a multiplier effect. So it's not just not just the amount that you, that you pour into the economy in that particular time, but it's supposed to last more than just that immediate, uh, immediate time period when you're actually doing it. Jeff, that's it from me. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to tell the audience? No, again, this is sort of our, you know, underlying taper story. Jay Powell, again, taper doesn't really matter. The QE is all just smoke and mirrors. But Jay Powell is trying to project confidence in this growing economy and growing recovery story by saying, we're so confident in the unemployment rate version of the economy that we're going to cut back on our monetary policy. And so there are other examples we talked about in the previous episode, swap spreads and the liquidity monetary side, which are sort of they're not consistent with that story. Now, here we have this inventory potential, potential inventory cycle that's overhanging that is going to come. It's going to happen. It's going to come out to the other side of it at some point late this year, early next year. And is it going to be the robust demand story where retailers are really ready for the inventory overhang and have no, no trouble absorbing it? Or will it be the soft patch that we're seeing in the third quarter continues into the fourth quarter, maybe into next year? And then we have an old-fashioned 20th century inventory cycle contributing to the overall economic picture, which would be very different than the one that Jay Powell is imagining for his tapering. I think I've got an idea what I'm going to ask David to draw for the art for the show. I think I'm going to have Jay Powell, maybe in an open convertible uh, Cadillac, thinking he's going to get a ticker tape parade, normalization, recovery. Except it's more of like a uh, toilet paper roll hitting him in the head and bouncing off or something. Or boxes of inventory just piling into <laughs> his car. I don't want to hurt him. It's just uh. a gentle toilet paper off the head. <laughs> Jeff, I loved it as I do every week. I hope you did as well. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. All right. Take care, Emil. <laughs>